Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to uh, Matthew chapter 10 as we continue our way through Matthew's gospel. In the last couple of weeks, we've looked at uh, Jesus letting his disciples know that the harvest is plentiful, uh, but the workers are few. Uh, and then last week, we looked at uh, Jesus commissioning those disciples uh, to engage in the work and to take the gospel on the road. Uh, I told them to pack light, to rely on the hospitality of fellow Christians, and to move on uh, from those who don't listen to the message. So that's like we can live with that. That's a, that's a good huddle right there, um, opportunity uh, for Jesus. But today, uh, as we look at verse 16... He starts out by telling them, so, so they're in the huddle, right? He's commissioning them, you know, pack light, rely on others' hospitality, move on from those that don't listen to you. In verse 16, he says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, I don't know how many of you might have coached out there, but, but can you imagine being in the huddle with the coach and the coach says something like, that, like, we're about ready to go do something and you might die, right? This is going to be difficult. Sending you out as sheep in the midst of the wolves. Sheep uh, are dumb and sheep are defenseless. Wolves are at the top of the food chain. And this is what Jesus says, I'm sending you out as if you are sheep amongst the wolves. And so he's giving them a little bit of a hint as to what this mission of taking the gospel on the road is going to look like. There's no chance with what Jesus just said of mission success with these odds. Can, can you imagine, uh, you know, as you're scrolling through YouTube and you're watching whatever you watch and you see a title about a sheep fighting a wolf, like you know how it's going to turn out before you ever watch it. But you might watch it anyway because you want to see how bad the carnage is going to be. And this is again what Jesus is telling them, I'm sending you out as sheep among the wolves. Why would he do this? Why would Jesus send us on an impossible mission if you think about it, some of our favorite stories are impossible missions. And not to get too corny, but Tom Cruise has taught us that there's no such thing as an impossible mission, right? There's always the ability to achieve mission success. But if you think about some of the stories that we like, one of my favorite underdog stories, William Wallace, right? Braveheart. What a cool movie Braveheart is, right? William Wallace fighting for his countrymen. We think about Rocky Balboa, maybe the ultimate underdog, right? Rocky's been an underdog. Every Rocky movie, he's the underdog. There, there comes no point where, where Rocky's the top dog. He's always the underdog. And we love those kinds of stories. Maybe an unlikely underdog, uh, Andy Dufresne, and if you know who that is, we can be friends. If you don't know who it is, Google it. One of the greatest movies I think ever made. But maybe, maybe the consummate underdog, the underdog of underdogs, Rudy Rudiger. We know Rudy Rudiger, the movie Rudy. Five foot nothing, they called him, and he wanted so badly to play for Notre Dame, to play football for Notre Dame. And he showed up to every practice for his entire college career. And not to spoil it, but if you haven't seen Rudy by now, it's on you. Um, he gets to play in the final game, and it's this cool scene. Like, if you don't cry when Rudy gets to play, there's something wrong with you. The underdog gets his chance and achieves what it is that he's been working at achieving. The mission that Jesus gives us, sheep among the wolves, zero chance of success except for the one who's sending us on the mission. 
That's what guarantees the mission success. It's the ultimate mitigating factor is that Jesus is the one saying, I'm sending you into this situation. Later on at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus would say that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Not a little bit, not some, not most, but all authority has been given to him. And then the next words out of his mouth are, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. So this impossible mission of sending sheep out among the wolves is mitigated by the sender himself possessing all authority that exists everywhere, not just on earth, but in heaven as well, all authority. And in between this call to go therefore and make disciples, it starts off with all authority has been given to Jesus and it ends with him saying, behold, I am with you always till the end of the age. This is the Jesus that's saying, I'm going to send you out on an impossible mission with impossible odds, and it might be pretty tough. It might be pretty difficult. And so we are guaranteed, just right out of the gate in this passage, that we understand that we're guaranteed mission success despite how the mission might look. I've titled the message today, When Winning Looks Like Losing. And a lot of times in the Christian life, winning looks a lot like losing. We see in Jesus' life, winning looked an awful lot like losing. Maybe not an awful lot, maybe winning did look, in fact, like losing, at least for a time. And so in the huddle with his disciples, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of the wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And I think this is maybe a few words that we often overlook. What is Jesus saying here? Be wise like the serpent. We get that. Serpents are wise. None of us like, we don't like serpents, right? But, but they're wise and they're cunning. Uh, they're predators. Uh, also kind of towards the top of the food chain. We employ the wisdom, but then he tells us not only to employ the wisdom of a serpent, in other words, pay attention to what's going on, but he says to be innocent as doves. And what he might be saying, like, like what do you think of when you think of a dove? You think of a, of a bird that's pure white, that, that pure and innocent, unmarred, unstained. Jesus is telling us to simultaneously to be wise like the serpent, but to be pure and innocent like the dove as we face these impossible odds. And, and what I think he's, he means by that is he's sending his disciples and thereby us, sending us out into a culture that's hostile. And we haven't known, I don't think, a whole lot of hostility in America, at least not in my lifetime, probably not before it either. But we can see the trajectory of things. We can see where things are going and we can see there's a growing hostility towards the Christian message because there's a growing hostility towards the Christ and those who represent Him. Right? You don't have to be paying all that close of attention to know that this is happening. I read not long ago, maybe you saw it in the news too, I think it was in England, um, somebody got arrested for praying out in front of an abortion clinic, and not even out loud, just was standing there kind of silently in their own mind, praying, and 
for some reason, the authorities came up and said, what are you doing? And the woman said that she was praying, and they arrested her for praying. That, that's hostility. And, and, and comparatively speaking, that, that's not that hostile. I mean, you know, people get their heads lopped off in other parts of the world for their Christian faith. But my point is that there's this growing hostility that, that we ought to be prepared for as Christians as, as our message becomes less and less palatable uh, to a hostile culture or a hostile society. And so Jesus is telling us, as we go into this hostility, to not fight fire with fire. Don't fight hostility with more hostility. We tend to think, if you're hostile to me, then I'll be more hostile to you, and maybe that'll make you tone down. And that kind of works sometimes, right? But Jesus isn't telling us to do that. Jesus is not telling us to fight fire with more fire. I don't even think He's telling us to fight fire with water, like ways that would seem intuitive to us to fight hostility. In this call to be wise as serpents, to understand and know what's going on, but also to be pure and innocent like a dove, He's giving us a clue how to fight or how to not fight necessarily uh, people who are trying to fight us. Part of the, the uniqueness of the Christian message is that it, it's counterintuitive to what comes natural to us. Winning by losing is very counterintuitive. We, we wouldn't write that story necessarily. And so don't, don't miss Jesus' call here to be wise and to be pure at the same time. It's hard when facing hostility not to be angry at those who are hostile towards you. It's hard sometimes not, not to flex a muscle that we think we have. But did we, did we see Jesus do that? Did we see the example of Jesus when He was arrested? He said He could have called down a legion of angels right there on the spot. Did He do it? No. He didn't fight hostility with hostility. He fought in a way that was completely counterintuitive. And so he's sending us out as Christians, as sheep among the wolves, to a difficult, impossible task with zero chance of success except for the fact that he's the one sending us on that mission, right? The ultimate mitigating factor that, that will indeed allow us to achieve mission success, even if it doesn't look like we're achieving mission success. And in that mission, he's telling us not to fight hostility with more hostility. I don't want to get off on a tangent here, but it's just worth mentioning with kind of the latest debate on Christian nationalism that this speaks to that. This speaks to that idea that, that we're not to fight the culture the way that the culture fights us. It's not the Christian way. In verse 17, Jesus gives us a little more clue about how impossible this mission is going to be. He says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts, and they'll flog you in their synagogues. And you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how, are you, how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you will say, are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it's not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will raise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated for all, you will be hated all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. 
When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all of the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Go team. <laughs> right? We're ready to take the field. We're ready to take the field in a game that we're just going to get obliterated in. This, this sounds tough. I, I don't want to sign up for this kind of a mission. And you probably don't want to sign up for this kind of a mission either. He doesn't say which men to be wary of, just to be aware of men, like people in general. Just be aware of people everywhere. Not only will they deliver you to the courts, but they'll flog you in the synagogue. Like they're going to drag you up in front of the church and tear you down. That's a scary thought. Then he says, when, when, not, not if, not in the chance that they might deliver you over, but when, when these things happen, when you're delivered to courts, when you're flogged in the synagogue, when those things happen, he says, don't be anxious. And like this makes me anxious just thinking about it right now. But he says, don't, don't be anxious about how you're to speak for what you will say will be given to you in the moment. I probably speak for the other pastors. Like we, we stand up here, and this isn't even the same thing, but we stand up here, you know, week after week, um, worried about what we're going to say. And we trust God week after week that what we say to you will be, you know, things that matter and things that are helpful to you and things that are, are faithful to Scripture and faithful to God. And, and, and that's not even persecution. <laughs> Jesus is telling him when the persecution comes, when the hostility comes, you don't have to lay awake at night thinking about what am I going to say? How am I going to react? How am I going to respond? That as an act of faith and an act of worship to God for who He is, trust that in those moments He's going to give you what you need. It, it may not be perfect because you're not perfect, but He is. And so, so God can take our, our flaws and our imperfections and our inabilities and He can make something of them that matters in the work of the kingdom. And that's what He's saying here. He reminds us that in those moments when we're struggling to know what to say or how to respond or react to hostility, in verse 20, He says that it's not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. I hope that gives you some comfort to know that when the difficulties come, when the hostility comes, the pressure is not on you to perform. The pressure is not on you. It's on God who has already got it figured out. And so we take some comfort from that. But if those stakes aren't high enough, in verse 21, he says, brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against their parents and have them put to death. So if we weren't already terrified and anxious about the hostility that's coming from the outside, he's saying it's going to come from the inside too. It's going to come from your own household. And if that's not bad enough, just as a catch-all, he says in verse 22 that you'll be hated by all. So the outside, the inside, and just all, right? This is how popular the Christian message is as it goes out into the world. And we have an account the entirety of the book of Acts is about the Christian gospel going out, and those who are taking the message out, they're persecuted, sometimes even killed. 
Church history shows us that, that every single one of Jesus' disciples died a martyr's death because they wouldn't shut their mouth. They wouldn't stop proclaiming the truth of the gospel. And we have that as our, our heritage and our legacy as the importance of the gospel. When we think about these underdog stories that we like so much, part of what compels us about the underdog is that their, their commitment to their cause, whatever it is, right? Whether their cause is love or whether their cause is winning or whatever it is, we're compelled by somebody who is so committed that they're willing to make a sacrifice for their cause. Those are the best stories. They're the best movies. And I think God has designed it that way for the gospel to have an appeal to the world by the commitment of those who sacrifice to make sure that others can hear it. That might just be part of God's design in all of this, is that, that part of the appeal to the gospel is that we're willing to sacrifice so that others can know Him. I think of Hebrews chapter 11, we call it the hall of fame of faith. And Hebrews chapter 11 goes through this long list of people who did great things in the name of God, names that we might be familiar with, like Abraham, someone we might be familiar with like Moses, like Jacob. We see all these names, but in Hebrews 11, starting in verse 32, after he's gone through the, the kind of the who's who of the Christian faith, Hebrews 11:32 says, what more shall I say for time would fail to tell me of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war and put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Yes, show me that movie. I will go to the box office for that movie, but it doesn't stop there. And he says, some, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. So Hebrews 11 gives us kind of the, the well-known of the Christian faith, people that we might say are our heroes. And then it gives us this other list that we don't even have their names. Some of them did great things. Some of them were mighty with the sword and put armies to flight. Some of them were tortured and sawn in two. I can imagine a lot of horrible ways to die, but being sawn in two without modern saws, like today you could saw someone in two just, you know, quick. Back then, like it was probably sharp rocks. And it, <laughs> I have to imagine it was painful and a slow, torturous way to die. Some were mighty with the sword and some won victories in battle and some appeared to have lost the battle because they were sawn in two and they were tortured. And it says of these people whose names that we don't even know, it says that the world isn't even worthy of these people. It's not even worthy of these people because of their sacrifice for kingdom work. 
because they had a long vision looking not to the here and now, but looking to what is yet to come. And that's their commendation. So it doesn't even matter, according to the writer of Hebrews, whether they set armies to flight or whether they were sawn in two. That part doesn't, I mean, that matters to us, but to the writer of Hebrews, what's important is that they were all fighting for something better. They were all looking to something better. They were all looking beyond the here and now. And these were the underdogs. These were the Rocky Balboas and the Rudy Rudigers of the world doing what they could so that the gospel could go out, that the message of the kingdom of God could go out. And it's in stories like this that we see that this is where winning looks an awful lot like losing. But we also see that maybe, just maybe, and, and I say maybe, but I'm pretty certain of this, that, that this is God's plan for the propagation of the gospel, is for a bunch of losers to take this message out into the world in an unintuitive sort of a way. And the modern church gets this awfully wrong, I think. The modern church gets this awfully wrong that, that sometimes it's God's plan and His design that winning would look an awful lot like losing. Jesus goes on in verse 24 of Matthew 10 to say that a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So, so here again, Jesus knows, like, it's not going to go well for him, right? Up to this point in the story of Jesus, it, it's, it's gone okay for him, right? He hasn't run into the real rough stuff yet, but he knows it's coming. Jesus knows that, that the cross is in his future. He knows that it's coming. He knows that, that torture is coming. He knows that death is coming. He knows that pain and that heartbreak is coming, and he's sending his disciples out to experience torture and pain and heartbreak and difficulty and hardship. And he's telling them that this is the plan. It's going to look like you're losing, but this is the way that we achieve the mission in an unintuitive sort of a way. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 a little bit about this idea of winning looking like losing. It says in 1 Corinthians 1.21 that since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, 
boast in the Lord. So Paul essentially tells us, like, these things are God's plan. <laughs> these things are God's plan that the gospel would go out with unintuitive people in unintuitive ways. It's God's plan that it's going to be hard. It's God's plan that it involves sacrifice. It's God's plan that it's going to look like we're losing. But it's God's plan so that nobody gets the credit for it except for God. We can't say that our church is a success because we're filled with the best people in Central Oregon, no offense to anybody. We can't say that. We're, we're just average people, ordinary Joes. And, and somehow, by God's design, the gospel goes out through our church. And people are impacted by it. We, we can't sit around and, and take credit for that. We can't sit around and pat ourselves on the back and say, we're so awesome and God's lucky to have us. We just can't. I don't think we have in our midst any Fortune 500 CEOs, right? God using unintuitive people in unintuitive ways, facing impossible odds, yet somehow achieving mission success because the one who sends us on this mission has all authority and will be with us till the end of the age. So he, he's going to see it through. He doesn't send, this, send us on this mission and say, check in with me when you're done and let me know how it went. He's with us. He's with us till the end of the age, giving us what we need to do what he's called us to do, giving us what we need to, to face impossible odds. And I think the thing I would ask us to consider today... <laughs> I mentioned earlier that the American church, I think, gets this quite wrong, right? We, we build churches to try to attract people, and, and with good motives, right? We, there, there should be some element to what we do that draws people in. But we, we build our churches often on the premise of, like, we want to fit into society, and, and we want to be, you know, help people, which we should. The church should do those things. I'm not saying that we shouldn't. But, but we forget about the part that, you know, helping people is nice, but, but when we bring the gospel into the mix and the message of the cross, the message that God came to rescue sinners, that, that, that creates hostility. And more and more as time goes, I shudder to think what our culture is going to look like five years from now or ten years from now with the trajectory that we're on. And so we don't need to soft pedal our message. Author Gary Brashears once said that the churches spend a lot of time trying to make the gospel relevant. But in reality, we ought to spend a lot of time showing people how the gospel is already relevant. And there's a difference there. There's a difference in trying to make the gospel relevant, in other words, trying to make it palatable, versus showing people the relevance of the gospel to their broken lives. And that's an unpopular message. But it's the message that God has given us. It's the plan and the design that God has given us that it's, that it's not going to be palatable by all. It'll be palatable by some, but not by all. And it's by God's design for Him to use average, ordinary folks, not big personalities with lots of charisma, not that God can't use them too, but, but by and large, God's plan is to use average, ordinary folks, maybe people whose names the world aren't even worthy to know, in order for the gospel to go out in 
unimaginable places and in unintuitive ways. Did, did you catch the part that we were reading that, that one of the reasons that Jesus sends the sheep out amongst the wolves and allows them to be dragged before the courts and flogged in the synagogue so that they'll bear witness about Him? How do you, how do you get in front of the president? You do something that's illegal, Right? How do you get the gospel to prisoners? Maybe you wind up in prison, right? We see throughout Paul's ministry, he was imprisoned. It sure looked a lot like losing in Paul's ministry. But you know what? He preached the gospel in prison. In a place where maybe it otherwise would have been impossible for the gospel to be preached. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards or powerful or of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so no human being may boast in the presence of God. So my encouragement to us today is, is one, that we would have a proper expectation that that if you have not faced persecution for your Christian faith, it's probably coming and we ought to be prepared for it. I don't know if it's going to be here tomorrow or next year or in 10 years, but, but we ought to prepare for it. They hated Jesus, and so they're going to hate those who follow Jesus. It just stands to reason. And my other encouragement is not only that we would set a proper expectation, but that, that we would prepare for when these times come that we would be able to exercise faith in what we've heard today, faith that, that God will be with us, faith that He'll give us the words and the way to respond when we don't know what to say or what to do. And faith, maybe more than all of that, that this is actually God's plan and God's design. Oftentimes we look at suffering and persecution and we attribute it to the devil. Maybe sometimes it is. But maybe sometimes it's just God having His people do what He's called His people to do, and it's just part of what we sign up for, right? We, we sign up for the possibility of setting armies to flight or the possibility of being sawn in two because we're looking beyond the here and now and looking to the kingdom to come. And we, we ought to be prepared for when those times come. And so, so my prayer for all of us, myself included, is exactly that, that we would be prepared and not, not afraid of persecution, not anxious about persecution. When we think of the scope of eternity, the time that we get on this earth is just, it's minuscule in the scope of eternity. Even if you live to be a hundred years, it's nothing in the scope of eternity. And are we willing as, as the underdogs in culture to sacrifice for our cause? Does our cause matter enough that we would be willing to sacrifice for it. And maybe, maybe that's a question that we ought to ask ourselves. Does the cause matter enough? Right? We, we work ourselves to the bone for 40 years so that we can retire well. I'm not knocking that at all, but, but that's something that we've deemed at some point in our life. That sacrifice is worth it. It's worth it to work 60-hour weeks to build up and to save so that you don't have to worry in retirement. We make that determination. Have we made that determination with the gospel? Is it worth it? 
for what's to come, to sacrifice something here and now, not only that we might persevere, but that we might take some with us when our time on this earth comes to an end. And we have the promise from the one who holds all authority in heaven and on earth that he will be with us through all of it from beginning to end. Father, we're thankful this morning that, uh, that that promise is true. We're thankful that you do hold all authority, that you are aware of everything going on everywhere all of the time. We're thankful that you love your children who you send out as sheep among the wolves. We're thankful that the gospel has come to us and that you've opened up our eyes to see the truth. And, and it, it's our prayer, God, that you would help us to be ones that take the gospel in places where it needs to go to people who need to hear it. And that you might use us, us nobodies who are never going to be popular, never going to be famous, never going to be household names, that you would use us to bring the gospel to a lost and dying world so that According to your plan, those who have been reconciled to God would now be ministers of reconciliation, that you would help us to proclaim the gospel truth anywhere and everywhere that we go, that you would help us to be aware of the cost, to count it, and to be determined that whatever sacrifice is required is worth it. Help us to remember that day in and day out. And God, we pray that through those efforts that you would bring others to know you, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.